Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 39, where Bob made the connections between Sinead Gonzalez and Colombian organized crime. Now we've got a lot of questions, so let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, first we're going to start things off with a voicemail. Hi, my name is Jay from Missouri. I enjoyed the uh, last episode, and although all the people in the uh, episode make good suspects, I was wondering if that creates a problem for the hypothesis that the invaders were inexperienced criminals. Thanks a lot. All right, well, thanks for that question, and it's a good question. But no, I don't think it causes any problems with the hypothesis that these are inexperienced criminals because. I, I don't believe, and I've, I've never believed, that they're inexperienced criminals. I think that they're inexperienced murderers. As far as the criminal sophistication, in my opinion, what we see at the crime scene at the Melgars, I think you have a very highly sophisticated group of people when it comes to burglaries and home invasions. I mean, when, when we look at, we've talked about a couple of them, but there have been several home invasions with similar MOs in Harris County, and, and they never get caught. And the only mistake they made, uh, so let's look at the Kingwood home invasion, because that, that's when we know for certain was a home invasion and someone did get caught. But look at how they got caught. They made one mistake. They didn't realize that the iPad had cellular service and that it could be tracked. And this is back in 2012 that I don't know when that feature became a new feature with Apple, but I bet it was somewhere around then. I don't remember having Find My Phone anytime before that. I'm trying to think 2012, that's when I moved. It's somewhere around there, but it had to be a relatively new feature. But as far as the home invasion itself went, I mean, you've got all of the intruders are wearing gloves and masks, so not leaving fingerprints. They're not being identified. They are, uh, in that case, they're they're covering up the victims with a blanket so they can't look at them any further. They have a lookout outside. They're using walkie-talkies instead of cell phones, so they, in my opinion, more, were very likely privy to the fact that cell phones can be pinged and tracked for location. Um, so th- those are all very high levels of criminal sophistication and using, you know, as, as Jim Clemente said when he was on, you know, one of the reasons people will use, uh, will break into an occupied home is because they can, they can use the different occupants of the house as leveraging as the other. And that's what we saw in Kingwood was, you know, they, they hold the man while they get control over and threaten his wife and kids, and that causes him to comply when otherwise he may not comply. Uh, and and that's what, what, to me, the scene reads with Jim and Sandy, that that's probably likely what the same thing that happened there. Again, a high level of criminal sophistication. They're not running out with stuff in and out of the house. They're stacking it up by the door, waiting for the last minute when the getaway drivers come in. They throw the stuff in the vehicle and they take off. 
All of that shows high levels of criminal sophistication. Now, we look at the crime scene at the Melgars. I'll, I'll preface this with saying that I absolutely know that there are people out there that don't believe this was a home invasion that Sandy did it. That's fine. I don't believe that, so I'm going to talk about what I believe happened. Uh, and, and so if this is a home invasion, look at the crime scene. Limited fingerprints. Limited DNA. Uh, we do have DNA profiles now that are being developed, thanks to Kathleen Zellner, who's been working on that. Uh, but, you know, we don't have the killer's blood or saliva, um, and, and we don't have, it doesn't seem like we have any significant fingerprints anywhere in the house, very likely, and not saying that it is the same group, but at least a very similar M.O. If you have the same M.O. from the Kingwood home invasion, you have the same thing, because they're wearing gloves, and they're wearing masks, so they're not shedding hair everywhere, and they're not leaving fingerprints everywhere. So in in Jim and Sandy's case, and in, in the case of Jim's murder, it looks to me, the scene reads to me as though these were criminally sophisticated burglars. They've done this before, and as Jim said, they probably made mistakes before, but that's common with career criminals like this, that they evolve over time. Every single time they commit a burglary, they learn what does work and what doesn't work, and they adjust their approach. In Jim and Sandy's case, though, Jim ends up murdered, but the only thing that's really sloppy about the entire thing is the murder itself. Jim was not able to be controlled. Whoever was attacking him could not overpower him. It was clearly not a planned attack. Uh, and so what happened in Jim and Sandy's case, in my opinion, in my read of the crime scene, is that you have criminally sophisticated burglars who probably have gotten a little cocky at this point because they've been successful. They've gotten away with it. They seem to have a routine that works. They got Jim under control, indicated by the fact that his ankles are bound, and they either was bound around the chest and got out of it, or they were starting to. They had Sandy in the other room controlled in the closet, and then everything got thrown for a loop when something triggers Jim to start fighting back. They weren't prepared for him to start fighting back, because most people wouldn't. If you have five people, six people, four people, whatever, with weapons in your house threatening to hurt you and your spouse, most people will not fight back. Most people aren't going to risk their lives for the material things in the house. And I believe Jim would fall into that category, which is why I think what triggered Jim was something happening with Sandy. Likely, I would think, when she's having a seizure, you know, that's going to cause all kinds of chaos. It's going to freak the people out back there. I think that Sandy was Jim's trigger to get up and fight back, but they weren't expecting Jim to fight back. And when he did, they went to their contingency plan, which is, you know, use your weapon, in this case, a knife, hold him there, keep him under control. If he tries to get away, then kill him. But they never expected that to happen. They never expected to have to kill anyone. But even then, look at the, the cleanup of the crime scene afterwards. Again, if this is assuming that this was a home invasion, you don't have the person that killed Jim jumping up and running through the house, leaving blood everywhere, leaving their DNA everywhere. They stayed still. They stayed calm. Other members of the group went and got that person a towel, went and got them another shirt, so they didn't spread any more of evidence around the crime scene. You can see evidence where they wiped things down from the, from the stool that was there. They tried to clean up after themselves, and they got out of there. And they abandoned the burglary attempt. They left stuff behind. They took some things, but they also left stuff behind, like the backpack in the garage, because they knew that it was more important for them to get out of there because now this is no longer a burglary. It's a homicide. They have to get out of there. So I, I think that everything about the crime scene, in my opinion, indicates a team of burglars that are very criminally sophisticated. They're very experienced in burglary but not in murder, uh, which is why we see a sloppy murder scene. But again, they were smart enough to still cover their tracks and get out of there. And here we sit seven years later, they still haven't been caught. All right, thanks for the voicemail, Jay. All right, this question comes from Gerald. With the crime family having so many felonious charges, surely there is DNA out there that can be looked at to determine a familial connection to the unknown DNA in the Melgar home. Is that a possibility? I think that at a point, it will be a possibility. To my knowledge, the DNA, the unknown DNA in this case, has never been run through CODIS. Uh, maybe the female DNA on the jewelry, unknown female number one from the jewelry, and 
in the jewelry box, in the bathroom, in the jewelry that was in the backpack. But for the most part, they didn't have full profiles. It was a bunch of partial profiles uh, that were all unknown people where all of the Melgars and everyone at the crime scene could be ruled out, but they wouldn't meet the standard to be a run-through CODIS. But from my understanding, Kathleen Zellner's working hard on the case. They're using new technology. They're getting better profiles. And hopefully that will eventually lead to being able to upload that DNA into CODIS and seeing if there's a hit. And that's an astute observation that it doesn't necessarily, if we're dealing with a bunch of offenders that are all related, it doesn't necessarily have to be the DNA of the particular person that was on the crime scene. You know, to me, the most significant unknown DNA is that that was found on Sandy's bindings. When someone's tying something, it's a likely time when they're going to take their gloves off and it doesn't look like something obviously they're going to leave fingerprints on. It's a scarf, but tying a knot tends to shed skin cells. So it's very likely that that DNA is going to be extremely important. And if we can develop that into a fuller profile and you upload it to CODIS, maybe the person who deposited the DNA isn't in there, but maybe their cousin is in there. And that's what you could find through when they say a familial match, they might come through and say, well, this person is related. This person that's in prison right now is related to the person who left that DNA on the crime scene. And that narrows our suspect pool. Lori says, anyone else a little nervous with Bob getting close to making connections with an organized Colombian crime family? Yeah, I've had a few people ask me if that's making me nervous. And I mean, a lot of what we do, I mean, think about anybody that we're investigating. Surely they have a um, a motivation to to shut us up, but that's that's that that comes with the territory. Uh, it's part of the reason why uh, you guys have heard us advertise many times with the Ring Video doorbell. I mean, my house and studio office, everything is completely surrounded by cameras that send all of the videos to outer space. Um, I know that a lot of you are very anti-gun here in Michigan. Uh, life is a little different, and um, we are we are well protected in our house in a very safe way. So, so that's just in general. But as far as the the Colombian connection here, I mean, what what I shared this week it was all, and there, and there was a there was a reason for that. But everything I shared this week is just public information. Those were newspaper articles and Facebook posts about what's out there. You know, I'm not I'm not sitting here telling you that this Colombian organized crime family are are the ones that killed Jim and Sandy. You know, we're just trying to, what I'm trying to do, and that's why this part of the process, the tail end, when we're doing alternate suspects, producing the podcast gets difficult because I'm just walking you through what I'm doing. So if we track where we've come from now is we look for, you know, we profile a scene. We look for cases with similar MOs, and then we look at those suspects. And is there anything concerning with those particular, or not it's even suspects, people of interest? Is there anything uh, with them that is is concerning, you know, maybe you find out, oh, this person was locked up. In this case, you know, we're looking at Sinead because she was involved in the Kingwood home invasion. We have Sandy saying she saw a Hispanic female. We have a long black hair right above Jim's head. The MO is almost identical in the Kingwood home invasion. And then we look and, and what's next? We start branching out. Is there anything else that, that we can see that may connect her to the crime or rule her out? And we find out that she's part of an organized crime family. Or she's related to people that are part of this organized crime family. But but that's as far as we're going to go with Sinead, certainly on the podcast. But I mean, there's there's not much else we can do. I don't have the authority to to bring any of these people in for questioning. I don't have the authority to, to subpoena their DNA or anything like that. So at that point, this stuff just moves on to lawyers. And these are just people to have on your radar to consider as potential alternate suspects. To me, I mean, again, as I said, there's always a concern and we always take steps to protect ourselves and our families. But in, in this case, I, I, I can't imagine that sharing public information that's been out there in the newspaper and Facebook pages and things like that uh, would be enough to trigger someone risking getting themselves into even more trouble. Listener Ashley has a question, and she's talking about the garage in the Melgar home. She says, was the lever on the garage door that was open in the locked or unlocked position? Usually there's a red cord attached to it that you pull down on to unlock it and manually open and close the door, say if the power goes out. Yeah, my understanding is that it was in the locked position, meaning the, the door opener was still functioning. Uh, it wasn't d- detached from the track so that you could manually open the door. It was locked. It appears that the door was opened due to somebody pushing the button. She then asked, was the garage door dusted for prints? 
I believe it was. It's kind of difficult from Carpenter's reports to see, uh, and some of that's just as difficult for me to recall from memory. But my understanding, yeah, I, I feel like I have an image in my mind of the dusted, uh, of the fingerprint dust on the garage door. So yes, I think it was dusted for prints. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. And she also mentioned that sometimes thieves can use coat hangers to break into garage doors. Yeah, I've I've read about that where people just kind of similarly to how if you lock your keys in your car, if anybody's ever done that and tried to get it unlocked themselves, how you kind of pry the the door open and slide a coat hanger down and push the unlock button. I've heard of people doing that with garages where they'll you know they'll kind of press the garage door in to create a little gap, reach in with a coat hanger, and then pull the lever back to to unlock the door so it can be opened manually. And she she had said, and I think in that post, she wanted to know if there were any coat hangers found nearby. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I mean, not to my knowledge. There was, there was definitely no documentation made of coat hangers that were found nearby. All right. This next one's from Lily. Bob, I love you, but I got the giggles every time you said, quote, Saturn Vu in the Organized Criminals episode. She says, I assume you mean a Saturn View, S-U-V, pronounced like the word view. Go ahead. I told you so, Bob. <laughs> Literally mid-recording uh, of that episode, when I said Saturn Vu, Mike stopped me and said, it's view. And I said, nuh-uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm just trying to look out for you, man. I don't want you to sound stupid out there. Yeah, and I, I sounded super stupid, and it was 100% <laughs> my fault, because he was doing his job. <laughs> Thank you. You know, told me I made a mistake. and But it's not entirely my fault. The pro- my The reason I was so certain is because I had a friend a while back who owned one of these Saturn views, and she referred to it as a Saturn Vu. And so, because she always called it a Saturn Vu, I assumed that's how it's pronounced. Mike tried to save me. I disregarded him. I'll give you a pass on this one, man. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this next one's from Sue. Now, her question doesn't necessarily pertain to our last episode, but she writes, I know that in the United States, every person who is indicted for a crime deserves a defense. Is it ethical, though, for attorneys to defend people whom they know are guilty? I don't understand how this helps society. Well, the problem is that you can't know that. You know, I mean, in some cases, sure, you can know this person is guilty, but you can't legislate for that one case. And so what our Constitution affords is that everyone is entitled to a good defense. It, but what is not ethical and what is not allowed is for any attorney on either side to lie to the jury, to the judge, or to even knowingly allow false testimony to come in. So by providing a a defense to a guilty person, essentially what we're doing is keeping the prosecution in check. So imagine a world where defendants weren't afforded that, and prosecutors were just able to prosecute people unchecked. They could use false statements, false evidence. They could twist the facts and manipulate the facts and have no one to keep it straight. So the balance in our system is that the other side has an attorney. And when an attorney is representing a guilty client, someone who they know is guilty, that's essentially what they're doing is making sure that this person gets a fair trial and only the real facts come out. And if they have a defense they want to try to make, they can make it. However, they again, they will not put on or they're not supposed to put on any false evidence are knowingly put before the jury any false testimony or evidence. But the the reason what the help for society is that the defense attorneys keep the prosecutors in check. It's a system of checks and balances, and I think it's very necessary. And I really applaud the defense attorneys that have to do this, because I don't know if I could. I I don't know if I I could bring myself. Y'all saw the struggle that I had even with Oscar Garcia, you know, figuring out that there was this Brady violation, but you know it sounds like he's probably guilty, and I don't want to help a guilty guy, but at the end of the day, we have to stand for truth and justice when it is, is beneficial to us and even when it's not. This one comes from Kimberly. If it is assumed by detectives to be Jim's blood on the handle of the safe, then shouldn't there be blood on the numbers to open it first? 
Maybe, but it could also be that the people that were trying to burglarize the house wiped down the front of the safe. Or we had the keys right there. They tried to use them. Or they had, you know, blood on part of their finger. You know, they, they had blood on their left hand, but not on their right hand. Uh, and, and, and I want to point out the blood on the back of the safe was determined, at least by, by Rossi and Carpenter, I think. And, and after viewing them, I personally am in agreement that these are not. And, and that's because you and I got to spend quite a bit of time with a fingerprint expert who showed us, like, what a fingerprint has to be made up of. It's a marking in blood on the back of the handle that it, at a glance might look like a fingerprint, but when you zoom in and look at it, in my opinion, it's clearly not a fingerprint. Uh, it's just it's more of a smudge or a smear of probably a gloved hand reaching back to that safe handle. But, you know, again, you could have blood on your left hand, not on your right. They punch the buttons with the right. They try to open the handle with the left, or they try to grab it, whatever. There's There's a lot of reasons, or it could have been wiped off. There's just a lot of reasons why the blood could be on the back of the handle, but not on the uh, the number pad. Yeah, and going back to the fingerprint expert we went and visited, it was amazing when they told us how detailed those prints had to be in order to get a clean print from them. Right. I mean, we were looking at a particular set of prints that we thought, there it is, we got these prints. And he said, no, it's, you know, because all it takes is a slight smudge or smear. So, I mean, you can take your finger and put it on, say, a piece of glass and and when you pull it away, you shift your finger just a little bit, and that little bit of smudge there uh, could be enough to make the fingerprint unidentifiable. They ha- I don't remember how many points, but they have to have so many different points in order for it to be a comparable print that will will stand up in court. And they take those things into microscopic depth when they're looking for those markings. Right, yeah. He was showing us, remember, you could see the pores yeah. in the ridges. Because what the fingerprints actually are, are just it's, it's just the pores where oil comes out of your skin. Uh, and as it comes out on those ridges and leaves little oil impressions. But yeah, he, he was able to show us microscopically, you can see all the individual pores on each ridge. Uh, because that's one of the way he's. That was one of the ways, right? That he could uh, that he could match them, is by the the different pores on a ridge. So even if you only have like one ridge line, you can use those as points. Mm-hmm. If the because the pore the pore locations are unique as well. Um, but uh, I guess it's a little less than fingerprinting. But uh, getting back to what we were just saying, that's why to me that doesn't look like fingerprints on the back of the safe. But yeah, I mean, I already answered this, but looping just, just tying this all in. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why there could be blood on the back of the handle, but not on the front. All right, and Vanessa says, for a bit of fun, Bob and Mike, what was your thoughts on the final episode of Game of Thrones? Oh, um, all right, so th- this is what we're going to do. There are two things. Some people may not have seen Game of Thrones yet, and I don't want to spoil anything for them. Good man. Yep. And secondly, there may be a lot of people that don't give a shit and don't want to talk about this at all. So what we're going to do, Mike, is you, we can answer this. And I'm sure there's some people that are interested. And let's drop in our ads after this answer. So for those of you that don't want to listen to what we're about to say, don't want it spoiled or just don't give a shit, you can hit the 30-second skip forward button until you hear ad music. So we will, as soon as we're done talking about this, we'll drop the ads in uh, so you know you can skip ahead and not be bothered with this because I'm up for talking about it, Mike. Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how you go about talking about it without spoiling it. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to spoil it. You're going that's to. That's sp- why they can skip ahead. That's why the ads are there. I thought you were still going to try and withhold as much as you could, no. even in this explanation. Yeah, I feel like you weren't listening at all when I explained what I was doing here with the ads. So right now, people don't want to spoiled. They can just skip past this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they'll know when they hear the ad music that they're past it. Right. It's genius, really. I think you're going to piss some people off. <laughs> no, no, no. So starting now, skip ahead if you don't want to hear about Game of Thrones. Uh, Mike, you first. What do you? What did you think about the conclusion? Mike, Mike is a newer Game of Thrones person. His girlfriend got him into it just a few months ago, and you binged through it right before the season went live. Yeah, we watched all the episodes together. Uh, in a nutshell, I'm content with the way the series ended, but at the end of the day, I wanted to see Jon Snow on the Iron Throne. You see, I didn't. No, I, I didn't. I'm. I think content is a good word because. The episode was not, it didn't end as, the series didn't end in a climactic way that I wanted it to. You know, you want this big moment at the end, and of course that moment came. You had that moment way earlier in the episode when when John did kill Daenerys, which had to happen, 
but it feels weird. It feels like we're spoiling it. But I know, we told it's very them, uncomfortable. We told people right, what to right. do. We told people what to do. But yeah, it, it took a lot of thought at the end of the day. When it was over, I had to process it. Mm-hmm. Like you and I came in the next morning on Monday morning and, and had to process through it. But so in my opinion, logically, uh, if we're looking at like what's best for Westeros, right? The best thing that could have happened is for Bran to be king. He's the perfect choice. There's a reason I think the writing was brilliant throughout the entire series that they kept, you know, and people were like, what? Bran's useless. He doesn't do anything. And you know, he's there for a reason. There's a purpose behind it. And he's the smartest person in the Seven Kingdoms. He knows everything that happened in the past, the present, and he can even foresee the future. He doesn't get emotional. He thinks very logically. He's certainly not a tyrant. I think he's the perfect king. It w- and that also show. I think it was well written that Tyrion is the one who figured that out, who is also extremely cunning. I didn't think, uh, and, I, and, and you and I disagreed on this, Mike, but I didn't think that Jon's character for me could be reconciled. Yeah, I definitely disagreed with you. I thought that although he made a few mistakes, especially in the a later- A few! He made a few mistakes. <laughs> Um, but I think those mistakes, dead people. those mistakes were out of his control. I mean, he tried to get the, uh, get his army to, to pull back when they were all assaulting the, the people of King's Landing. It was too late. It was too late. He tried his best. I think he even killed one of his own guys trying to, trying to protect an innocent person. And I think a big arc to the show was, was John discovering his true identity as this Targaryen who was the rightful heir to the throne. And then all of that kind of got pushed aside. I agree with that. But. The fact that, you know, for this entire season, he got so caught up in Daenerys that he was so in love with his aunt. Yeah, weird. Weird. Making out with his aunt. <laughs> Pumping uglies with his aunt. <laughs> what the hell? Anyway, I guess that's okay in the in, in Westeros. <laughs> Sisters, aunts, whatever. It was a different time. Right. It's a different time. That's what we say about everything. Right. <laughs> But he was so caught up on her that he he let his he's always been the guy that stood up for what he knew was morally and ethically wrong, even a great personal sacrifice. But he wasn't willing to do that for Daenerys because he knew the plan going into King's Landing was bad. He knew that 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 the plan to kill all these people was terrible. It shouldn't happen. He could see. I mean, he saw. He's a smart guy, right? When when he, when he starts telling her, "Hey, or you know, I'm actually your nephew," which you'd think would have upset her about the sex didn't but it upset her because of the claim to the throne and he watched her straight you know the writers i thought masterfully like arced daenerys's character and shifted her into this just raging just power hungry person who just wanted the throne more than anything and john saw it but he just he was so blinded by love or whatever lust whatever his thing was that he to me he could have stopped this he had the support all the way back when they were in winterfell he could have stopped this he could have taken his claim and and you know there was the unsullied there, but they everything would have fallen apart for Daenerys, and he let it go. And it was not for a strategic reason, I don't think so. To me, John couldn't be reconciled. Didn't deserve to be on the Iron Throne. Also, let's not forget, John didn't want to be on the Iron Throne. And and as far as where he ended up, some people were pissed about that. Uh, my stepson's he got the short end of the stick. But remember, again, the foreshadowing that's been done by these writers. I don't think they've they're given enough credit. When John is leaving Winterfell, and what's the uh, the red haired guy's name, the, the wildling? Tormund, I think. Tormund. When when he's leaving, Tormund says, "You know, you can come with us." And John says, "I wish I could," right? Because that's truly where John wanted to be was uh, was north of the Wall with the wildlings, and and that's exactly where he ended up. Sansa uh, was the champion for the North. She kept the North independent. Uh, again, I like how Tyrion was the one that came up with the idea of Bran. Bran's a brilliant choice for me. But the coolest part of that episode that I liked the most was the dragon destroying the Iron Throne. Explain. Explain. And we talked about this. Yeah, we have. I thought your take was pretty good. Yeah. Because I didn't see that. Right. So go ahead and explain. So the dragon, Drogon, Drogon is its name? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, it's a smart creature. It's not a dumb creature. It knows, it, it knows what people are good. It knows which people are bad. Even when they're flying and it's burning people up, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's blowing up, you know, burning up the... The Whisper Guy, whatever his name is, I don't remember his name. Started with a V. Or, yeah, whatever his name was. But I mean, right there next to other people, he knows where to hit. Uh, so smart dragon, right? And varies, varies. Is that his name? Yeah. yeah. So John kills Daenerys. The dragon comes down. Is angry. The dragon wants to kill what burnt up, what killed his mother, the mother of dragons. 
and he looks at John, and then he looks at the throne, and then instead of killing, destroying John, he destroys the throne. Because the reality is the deeper part of that scene, I think, is that it wasn't John that killed Daenerys. John did what he had to do. It was the throne that killed Daenerys. It was it was her insistence and obsession was sitting on the Iron Throne that put her over the edge and ultimately led to her death. The dragon knew that. And that's why he destroyed the Iron Throne. That was a really good take on that scene, Bob. Yeah. Genius. Genius. But all in all, it was the episode wasn't exciting for me. You know, there wasn't that big battle, you know, we all expected, I think. For Daenerys to go after Sansa, which she was going to go after Sansa. She's going to liberate them, right? Like she liberated the people at King's Landing. Right. Liberate means... Dominate. Burn them conquer. to death. Yeah. Right. Kill them all is what she was going to do. Uh, but John stopped her beforehand. So um, I think we got on about that long enough. We should start a podcast where we talk about TV shows. I think <laughs> we're good at this. We're solid. What do you guys think, video people? You guys can't. Tough crowd. Tough crowd, right. You guys can't hear them, but they're all cheering and waving the Patreon video folks. But yeah, it wasn't uh, content, I think. you know, If you sit down and think about it logically afterwards, I think there was some really brilliant writing done, and and they wrapped the story up nicely. Not so happy with Arya, though. She just kind of sailed off. Like, which I bet, I bet there's a spinoff there. There's a spinoff coming for Arya, because I was just like, I'm going to go west of the map. Yeah. Bye. Oh, yeah. I mean, we wanted to see her back with Gendry. Gendry, I think. Gendry. We want to see her back with Gendry, right? Or whatever. Yeah. The, yeah. And she sailed off. But And you look at every franchise, whether it's Marvel superheroes or Star Wars or Star Trek, none of these franchises are going anywhere. None of them end. Right. So we're going to see more Game of Thrones someday. Yeah. And they and they definitely set it up for a return Yeah, uh, later. They set it up with, uh, you know, when they said, is, is this going to work? And Tyrion says, well, ask me in 10 years. And, you know, John, we don't know where the dragon is. You know, there's a lot of things that could happen there. And it's, and it's, and it's in Westeros. I mean, John, John died, came back to life. The mountain died, came back to life. Who's to say, oh, 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 here's a prediction. Huge prediction before we go to our commercial break and get back to the important stuff about the case. A friend of mine, Tessa, is convinced that the White Walkers are actually Targaryens. She thinks that, you know, all the, the white hair. I can see that. Yeah, she's convinced that they're actually Targaryens, and I don't know enough about the history, but if she's right about that, Daenerys could come back, if they ever relaunch the show, as the Night Queen. Right. What? That's good. What? We'll see. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We're going to get back to the case. All right, listener Beverly wants to update everyone on her communications with Kenny Snow. She's been in contact with Kenny, and Bob, I think this is a good chance for us to update everybody because listeners have been asking about him. First of all, she says, Kenny says hello to everyone. He got married last year to a woman he's known since childhood back in Ohio, and she's currently fighting to get him out. Yeah, I actually had the pleasure of talking to his, his wife a few months ago. She emailed me trying to get a hold of, um, and I, I don't know when exactly they got married. I didn't even know there was a communication there. I'm assuming the connection kind of came once we started covering on the podcast. I don't know, uh, but they did They did get married, and she's, she's trying to get him out and get him back home to Ohio. Next, they're waiting to see if a new bill will be passed, House Bill 1271. She says, from my understanding, after half his time is served, 20 years out of 40, they could allow him out on parole for good behavior, etc., but he wouldn't be coming up for parole until April 1st, 2020. Yeah, I'm not entirely familiar with that House bill. My understanding, because it's already in Texas, after you've served half your sentence, then you become eligible for parole. But I think the intention of that House bill, and I haven't had a chance to research it since I saw this post, it basically allows what happened with Ed to happen to other people where someone can be paroled by maintaining their innocence because of good behavior. And in my opinion, like Kenny's case is tragic in so many levels. I believe Kenny Snow is innocent. Uh, he he really, as we've mentioned in previous updates, I know people a lot of times, I, I feel like people don't listen to all the episodes and then we get the same questions over and over again that we've answered, which is any updates on Kenny. And, and, and Kenny's in some pretty dire straits case-wise. Um, the last time I talked to Susan Schoon, which I haven't heard from her for a while, she was trying to get some some records, anything to get her hands on from Smith County, because with what we have, there's not enough there and you know, with Kenny pleading guilty, taking the deal, and and seemingly being happy with his deal until he broke his probation, and then the case was adjudicated, and then he got sentenced to forty years. That's really tough to overcome to convince someone you're innocent when you pled guilty. 
And it happens, but it's tough. That's a tough burden. The best thing we had for Kenny was Bill Cole. And as you all know, he had his, his stroke and is just completely debilitated. Last time I talked to his daughter, she said that there's, he's, there's no anticipation for him to recover or to regain his speech or anything like that again, um, which is, is tough. But the reality is, even with Bill Cole saying that he was never in court, and even with Bill Cole saying he doesn't remember the gold tooth, given the standards of and the burdens for actual innocence in Texas, th- as I understand them now, I still don't think that would be enough to show that he's actually innocent. It, it's, it's heartbreaking. Because he's just he's he's stuck, and and I wish there was more that we could do. I I don't know what to do. And I said I've asked Susan, and I can't have communication with Kenny because of Ed's case, as we mentioned. You know, there's still a p- potential that his once we file the writ, and he goes to and, and Ed goes to file his claim of actual innocence. At that point, the the evidence from Kenny could come in. He could be called as a witness. Whatever it is, years ago I had to decide. You know, if I was going to work on Ed's case, and this is after we knew what happened to Bill Cole, that I couldn't have communication with Kenny because I could taint him as a witness. So I've had to stay away from Kenny. I've not been able to communicate with him. He is aware of that. But I get letters from him every once in a while, but I, I, he, I've made very clear to him I can't. I just can't uh, have communication with him because of that. But the, but the one of the most tragic things about Kenny's case. And I think it's completely unfair, and I think it's why he probably should have a really good chance at parole next year, is a 40-year sentence. I mean, he was convicted, even though he pled guilty. Let's just say he's guilty, and I don't believe he's guilty. I believe he's innocent, but he pled guilty. So it looks on paper he's guilty. Robbing a guy for about $1,200, you know, hit him in the face, no permanent injuries, and fled. That was it. And he got 40 years in prison for that. And, and that is 100% an indication of the racism that goes on, or at least went on, probably still does in Smith County, Texas, because we have another guy a few years later prosecuted by the same prosecutor, by David Dobbs, who was convicted of premeditatively murdering his mother for money and, and was convicted. The evidence was, was solid. It took two trials, but they got it done. They got the guy convicted, and he gets sentenced to 27 years. Rich white guy premeditated murder of an elderly woman, throwing her down the stairs to kill her 27 years. Kenny Snow, poor black guy, robs a guy of $1,200 or is convicted of that. And even, like I said, even if he was guilty, it's a terrible crime and it needs to be punished, but give me a break, 40 years? And I think that that's an argument that could be made to the parole board. And when that time comes, you know, at this point, I don't know what communication. I, I know, I, I know, I'm getting ahead of you because I've heard, I, I've seen the rest of these, so we'll we'll see what we're not. I'm not hitting on here, but I, I know that that Kenny has had a hard time communicating with, uh, with Susan Schoon. I know that there was some. Uh, I think there was. I don't know if I remember correctly. There was some conflict between Kenny's new wife and Susan. I don't know exactly what's going on. I know when I talked to Kenny's wife a couple of years ago, or last, or a few months, or whenever it was last year. She was not happy. She didn't think that Susan was doing enough and should do more. So I don't know what that dynamic is looking like, but it seems like there was probably a strained relationship and Susan was working for free. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. But regardless of that, I think that we can put together a letter writing campaign. We can focus on Kenny's uh, assistance in Ed's case and his willingness to, at, at personal loss or potential for personal loss, stand up, write, write an affidavit, and do the right thing for Ed. I don't know, and a parole attorney would be, would be the person to ask there, not me, but in my opinion, I don't know if Kenny can use the angle of let me out because I'm innocent like Ed did, not because he's not innocent, but because there's just not enough evidence. You know, and his, his case, again, is tragic. Remember, Smith County destroyed all the evidence. There was a hat found at one of the crime scenes well, I forgot about Juan Martinez, too. There was two victims. There was a hat found at one of the crime scenes uh, where Juan Martinez had hit the person in the face. The offender's blood was on the hat, and there was a spot of blood on the concrete, and that evidence was destroyed before it was ever tested. You know, that DNA testing could have could have freed Kenny. I don't know. It, it, it seems to me, just understanding how the parole system works in Texas and knowing Kenny's case, that if Kenny is going to be able to get out of parole next year, I think he's going to have to take the angle of Look at his record in prison. He's got a clean record. He's had good behavior. And sadly, he may have to to demonstrate some remorse 
in order to get the parole board's attention, and, and that's terrible. And I hope there's another option than that, but I just I don't think we have enough to convince the parole board that Kenny Snow is innocent, especially considering I mean, we may be able to use the uh, the recording. I still have the recording of Bill Cole, but I was told by the attorneys that that's not enough, at least for court. You know, you you have to have him. Number one, you need a, a written affidavit, and he really needs to be going and testify. And even with that, we don't know if it's enough. So, with all that being said, I guess I'll let you go on with the questions. I'm sure I hit a lot of. Is there anything that she wanted to know about that I haven't hit on? Well, you did mention you getting in contact with Bill Cole's daughter for answers, and Kenny wants to know if there's a way to get in contact with her for confirmation of everything. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not, and for a couple of reasons. Number one. I didn't track down Bill's daughter. She contacted me because I had left several voicemails on Bill's answering machine. Didn't hear from him for a couple months. When she went into the house after they moved him out, when he was moved into uh, the care facility that he's in, she heard the voicemails and called me back uh, and gave me all the information. She was very sweet and very nice, but a couple of things. Number one, I don't have her permission to share her contact info with anyone. Two, she didn't give it to me. I did later track down her number and call and leave leave a voicemail, but you know she called me from a block number to explain to me what was what was going on uh, with Bill. Uh, but then during that conversation, she also said, "I do not want to be bothered about this anymore. I've gone through enough with my dad. I don't want Kenny Snow contacting me. I or she didn't. Even, I don't think she even called him by name. I think it's the, the the guy in prison. I don't want." Uh, this guy in prison contacting me. I don't want lawyers contacting me. Just I wanted to answer your questions and then leave me alone. So I don't have permission to share her contact information. And she explicitly told me she doesn't want people bothering her about it anymore, which is very likely why she didn't respond to me when I called her back uh, You know, a year later or whenever it was uh, asking her for any updates. All right, and last, Beverly also asks, if there are any people who are interested in trying to help out Kenny, please let her know. Yeah, that's great. And I know I heard from Pamela uh, Westby, one of our transcribers today, uh, about this. She messaged me. It sounds like they're working with an organization to try to work on this parole angle. Um, so what, what is Beverly's full name on the on the fan page? Her full name is Beverly J. Clark. Okay. That, so if you go to the fan page, look up Beverly J. Clark. Go ahead. If she's willing to, to head that up, that's great. And I know, like I said, Pamela's helping her as well. Um, shoot her a message. Uh, you can get to her through our Facebook fan page. If you guys can put together a team, help. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Um, certainly, as we as the time gets closer, I want to put out a call to everyone to try to draft some letters of support like we did for Ed once Kenny does come up for parole. All right, next I want to talk about a post on the fan page about Jedmatch. A listener posted an article citing a brief that the company put out publicly where they're making some changes to their policies. Yeah, that, and that was actually one of our other transcribers, our head transcriber, Jen Reese and Candela, uh, that put that out. And I, I was actually, when we were getting ready to record this, I was d- discussing that on the post on our on our fan page with some other listeners. Essentially what's happening, so you guys, we've talked about Jedmatch, which is, you know, it's a it's a database where people submit their DNA for, you know, to to put together family trees and things like that. But law enforcement has had access to it, and it's and it's helped solve a lot of cold cases, including the Golden State Killer case. It's also helped to identify a lot of John and Jane Doe's. You know, the, for years, you know, there, there's these dead bodies that show up. Nobody knows who they are. They have no way of identifying them. Uh, law enforcement has been using GEDmatch to submit the DNA from the dead bodies into the system to find because what it does is it shows you if there's anybody else in the system that might be related to them and it it's been in a very meaningful way very productive you know it has it has brought closure to a lot of families people that are their loved one has been missing for years they don't know what happened to them and then they finally after run, running DNA through this jed match law enforcement is able to get a hold of these families and tell them we have identified uh this person who's related to you and when we know what happened to them and then again it's it's put a lot of killers behind bars, and, and the FBI is just really ramping up their task force to use JEDmatch technology to put people behind bars. However, this has always been a two-sided issue because a lot of people feel like this is an invasion of privacy. You know, when people put their DNA into these systems, now law enforcement has access to it, and I see that argument. For me personally, and by the way, I am stating this personally because I personally have submitted my DNA 
to these genealogy services after this has become public knowledge. You know, no, because you know the joke was with my wife when I put up my DNA, like, oh, I hope you don't you don't ever commit a crime because now your DNA is in the system. But I, for me, I don't feel it's a, an invasion of my privacy because that's that's really not how it works. You know, obviously, if you commit a crime and then submit your DNA to a database that's dumb, but or maybe you submitted it and then committed the crime, whatever the case may be. But typically what they're finding are familial matches. You know, that's how, and I've talked about this before, they caught the Golden State Killer. Uh, they, they've had this DNA profile for years and years and years. And this guy had, I think it was like 19 murders and, and 50-some rapes. He was a wretched, horrible human being. He was a monster. And for decades, the case remained unsolved. And all it took was, was uploading you know, the semen DNA that they found on lots of these crime scenes and uploaded to Jedmatch, and boom, here's some people that are are related to the guy. So then now they know our suspect, the person who did this, is related to these people. They were able to track him down, put him behind bars. Uh, so th- there's, a, there's a huge benefit to it. The downside is that it is it could be considered an invasion of privacy. What Jedmatch just did is change the default setting when you make an account to not allow your DNA profile to be accessible from law enforcement. So if I understood the article correctly, that's always been part of the agreement that it says right in GEDmatch when you sign up and send your DNA that uh, you're by doing this, you're agreeing to let law enforcement have access to this database. Now what they're doing is by default, when you set up an account, you are not allowing that. So I, I don't know what that looks like, but imagine a toggle switch that says, will you allow law enforcement to have access to this or put this into the law enforcement database, it's auto-selected as no. So you have to now intentionally go in and select, yes, I want my DNA available to law enforcement, which obviously very few people are going to do that. It sounded to me like it was going to be retroactive as well. Uh, I'm not positive about that, but it seemed like maybe the, the, the existing database was going to be taken out of the hands of law enforcement unless they opted in. Not sure about that. But essentially, it's, it's one way or another, it's limiting the amount of people that will be included in the database that law enforcement has been using to both identify bodies and to solve violent crimes. That's Now, there is another, I don't remember off the top of my head, but there is another company that that is available for law enforcement to use. But as far as GED match goes, it's going to be extremely limited from here on out. And again, it's going to be a hotly debated topic. My personal opinion on it is I think that the only people whose privacy that's being violated by this are violent offenders. And then, and then I guess maybe you get into a gray area where it's like, well, we're all about protecting victims' rights even you know, or, or, or defendants' rights. Even if they're guilty, it has to be done right. I just don't see my perspective is this. It is 100% legal for me, you, law enforcement, or whoever to go up to someone's trash can and pull their trash out of it and test that DNA to see if it matches something on a crime scene. I I see this as less invasive than that, where if someone in your family happened to put their DNA profile up there into this database, and I have DNA, say it's a rape case, imagine your relative, friend, yourself, whoever was violently raped and maybe killed, and the killer left a semen sample, in you on wherever on the crime scene, and we, they take that sample, they run through CODIS. Whoever did it is not in the CODIS system. They're never caught, and then they're out there and they're going to attack someone else. They're going to do it again and again and again. And imagine how many victims could be spared if we were able to take that DNA profile, upload it to GEDmatch, and find out oh, this guy, we found a guy in the system. It's not him, but it's his brother. and an hour later, this person is brought to justice. You know, so that 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 benefit to me way outweighs the privacy concerns because the only privacy that's violated is, say, the brother. That hey, I just wanted to be on this website, and now you used it to convict my brother. And and again, th- th- these aren't circumstantial cases, right? You used it to prove that my brother was raping and killing people. That's an invasion of my privacy. Again, I know my tone is that that uh, I think that's silly. I don't think it's silly. I do understand the privacy concerns. I get it. I don't fault anybody that holds that view. 
For me personally, I don't think that this invasion of privacy for whatever it is outweighs at all the positives of capturing and stopping these offenders from continuing to commit violent crimes against innocent people. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.